I didn't grow up with Yeti coolers. I grew up with Coleman cheap ass coolers. We were going to start recording like an hour ago, but we've just been hanging out because um, this is just life as you get older and have kids and and don't just hang out as much anymore. Yeah, um, my, my my wife and daughter are on vacation with my wife's family. I love my wife's family, legitimately. They're wonderful people. I just, now that we have to pay, our daughter's old enough, we have to pay for a plane ticket. She doesn't sit in our lab anymore. We did a cost-benefit analysis and thought visiting, I'm not a beach person. My wife and her family are a very large family. They're, by the way, they are absolutely lovely. I do legitimately love them and love spending time with them. No one's saying you do. Almost the frustration of this yearly thing they do is that they all want to see each other. And so, like, I kind of, like, don't get to talk to anybody because they're all talking to each other. So... We're kind of like, oh, I don't need to go. So I didn't go. So I've been living the bachelor life for the last few days. Um, and so Billy came over to actually record a podcast in person, which is hilarious because I had purchased stuff to record podcasts in person, but then the pandemic hit and no one does podcasts in person anymore. So I ended up selling it and then Billy was like, oh, wait, where's your stuff? I was like, oh, I sold it because we don't use it anymore, but now you're here in person. So I guess we're just going to record via phone. Um, <laughs> so it's hilarious. But yeah, we've been just hanging out, shooting a breeze because... Two, two dads that don't get to just hang out. And, by the way, we literally just spent the last probably 20 minutes talking about how much we love our kids. And it's the best thing ever. So it's not like we're like, oh, okay, we're glad we're away from our kids. No. Shooting the breeze. But it's good. Let's talk about beavers. Well, let's talk about a few little things first. Um, so we're going to remind people that you can always send us an email at urbanwildlifecast at gmail.com with any ideas you have, thoughts about past episodes, um, or even pitching stuff that you'd like to be part of the episode in. Um, we are, I won't say active on Twitter, um, it's just Twitter being the like crappy land that it is now. I but. feel like social media is in transition right now, and I don't know what the social media to be involved in is anymore. I know. I've started doing Instagram, and I'm not... And I part of me likes it, but like I love Instagram. Apparently, no one cares about Instagram anymore. I'm like, great. Now oh, that I finally great. got into it, because I do. I use it for work. Um, so we have to catch up with TikTok. Is that what you're saying? Oh, what? But it sounds like TikTok is generally problematic. Like, um, yeah. But like, I love Instagram, and and I've gotten so into it for work because I work at a facility that yeah. you know, and and I love interpreting. You know, I think it's a great way to like. I think people don't comment and like stuff anymore, but to look at it, I think, but like, I don't know, but it's such a great, like literally today I, I took a, you know, we didn't have programs today. I took a walk, um, with our, our lovely uh, seasonal staff, um, person and, and, uh, we, he, he found the Oriole nest. We didn't see the Orioles, but we went out and we found, um, we saw a pair of bluebirds and we saw, you know, the, um, milkweed, uh, common milkweed, butterfly weed, which is a milkweed. Dogbane, which is a close relative of milkweed, are on bloom. I, I figured are. out the macro settings on my camera. I took some great photos of the milkweed, of the, all the f flowers, as well as the pollinators. Took some pictures of bluebirds, oral nets. It was wonderful. I put it on Instagram. I mean, that's the kind of thing I feel like I should be doing, right? But I don't know how many people look at it. But I've gotten so into Instagram for work and a little bit of personal life. But I don't know. You know, I haven't been at all active in social media for Urban Wildlife Podcast in, I don't know, years? Yeah, and I, and I think um, 
this is why I think we're going old school with the email is the best way to reach out to us. Um, but yeah, I, I, I've not mustered the energy to, to get into Instagram or to pay much, to do much with the Facebook page. Um, email is still the best way to get to us. We were looking at Patreon where we want to make sure that we thank Susan Blancet. We want to thank Susan Blancet and Anna W. and Paula Gaber um, for contributing to, to the Wildlife Observer Network, which is uh, sort of the, the umbrella that, that the Urban Wildlife Cast falls under. Um, well, with that said, it's basically all we do now. Let me explain that. Well, but I wouldn't be good. On Patreon, that's how you find us. It's, it is how you find us, yes. And we want to thank the folks who are contributing. And we want to say that if you want to chip in, that's the way to do it. Um, find Wildlife Observer Network on Patreon. Uh, we're not ever going to make, I think, ever clear any money on this. We still lose money every month. Not a whole lot, but we do. Yeah. Yes. And, and so, well, like, me if, personally, I do. I, 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 do, I do, too. Yeah. Okay, yeah. <laughs> so what do, do you lose money on? We should the about. hosting costs. Oh, yeah. I lose money for a website that we never use, but yes, still. Yes. <laughs> In any case, we have, we have definitely have the hosting costs that we're using. If you're listening to this, it, the hosting is working. Um, and uh, that costs money. So things like that cost a little bit of money. If you can chip in, we greatly appreciate it. And heck, even if we did clear money, that would mean that we could like sort of bump this up in our to-do list ahead of some things that currently tend to call our attention more. Right, we, we wouldn't money be. On them. We wouldn't be enriching ourselves. We would be reinvesting it, investing in stuff to that would make the podcast yeah. better and do the you other know, things. You know, no one ever, ever went into nature media to get rich. Um, yeah, it's funny. I mean, you know, I mean, a real normal story was that. Um, so funny, mate. We got thinking, like, man, we started this podcast, but it's so niche. And I people would write me, write us, and be like, man, we, we love your podcast. We listen to like Meat Eater, like Steve Vanella's Meat Eater podcast, because there's so little wildlife content out there, and we don't know, you know, like your podcast is so great. We love listening. There's so little wildlife podcast, uh, wildlife content out there. And I was like, you know what? There's a market, market, and not like I'm trying to like make money, but like a market like, oh, we could expand and it would be viable and not a money loser. And for you know, I didn't when I grew up, I didn't think like, oh, podcaster, nature media person would be a, a job. I I had the job I wanted when I was a little kid. It's different now than I thought it was. Yada yada yada. But anyway, like oh, maybe maybe this is something we should try to do as like potentially as a new career or just like you know something that's self-sustainable at the very least my aunt uh died left me a very modest amount of money which i invested in a, a computer and some recording equipment and uh, getting a website and i was like let's do wildlife content broader than urban wildlife and guess what the pandemic hit so every nature every wildlife birder whatever um guide is now out of business because of the pandemic, and they all started podcasts. And you know what? I'm so glad because I think um, Naturally Adventurous by Ken Charlie is the, my favorite podcast, and they do a podcast about our wildlife that I could never do because I don't I don't travel the world as a nature guide. And now that they're back to work, they have much better content. So people, and also like all these other entities that could you know engage the public because they're closed, start a podcast like. You know, all these other nonprofits and government agencies. And there's so much wildlife content out there now that it almost makes sense to like for us to double down on what we're the best at is urban wildlife and not be broad. So we started the urban started the wildlife urban network right before everybody involved in wildlife who couldn't interface with the public started a podcast. 
it doesn't make kind of make sense anymore to do that but we're doubling down on what we're what our expertise is and, I, and i'm happy i'm happy that all these other people who who started the podcast are doing it it's great i'm glad it's content out there but we thought maybe they were we we're going to do something bigger and it didn't work out and it's fine because i'm glad that people who are who are doing it doing it legitimately i'm no sour grapes but i think it's it's funny i thought we should expand but i think you know what this is our niche and i think i think we should just continue doing what we do so you brought something up that makes me want to ask you a question how many people do you think listen to meat eater who aren't at all into hunting or fishing As I've like flirted with hunting, like I've started listening to Meat Eater, but like, I, I, I also, it's a podcast. People don't know it. There's this guy Stephen Ranella who's written some really great books. Um, American like, Buffalo is a fantastic book. So is uh, Forager's Guide to Haute Cuisine. And he has a kids book now too. Like, yeah, so he's very similar to your book, by the way. Yeah, he, he's a very, he's an incredibly skilled storyteller. I sit there and listen to him tell stories or read his stuff in his books, and I sit there and, like, try to break down what is so good about the way he tells stories. But he's an amazing storyteller, super charismatic guy, uh, can make things that look scary, like going out into the wilderness to, like, shoot an elk and then, you know, spend four days in miserable weather hiking back with it. In pieces. You like, definitely part of the like makes it all seem really achievable. Athletic hunting movement. Yeah, yeah. And, it, and but he's um, also just in a way like um, even though I definitely don't agree with all the ways that I have found that I think the the hunting community views themselves as conservationists, which I'm going to try to avoid that conversation for now. It's hey, a big you, one. You know, I mean, you're I'm a hunter. I mean, I haven't hunted in years, but I guess. Hunting was my introduction to nature. Yeah. I would like to... If I didn't like other, other stuff so much, I would hunt more. Um, you try to hunt. <laughs> You've <laughs> hunted more than I have. So we're not dishing, we're not dishing hunting. Oh, no, 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 respect. no. Yeah. But with that said, I do agree with you. I definitely think... Yes, hunting is probably still recreation activity that benefits conservation the most. However, the downside of hunting... Is that I don't know how to explain this, but like they want to maintain populations of animals to hunt, right? And some of those populations should probably be a lot smaller for the benefit of overall ecology. And they also have, I do feel like they have a little bit. I hate the word problematic. I feel like oh, problematic views. I disagree with some of their views about predators and predator control. I feel like they're a little. I feel like the hunting culture is sometimes a little bit more prone to suggesting that we control the populations of, of predators because I think they're, they want to maintain populations of ungulates that they uh, yeah. in excess so they can so for the recreation. I think that's a, a real thing, but I could be wrong. There's a, we could have a whole podcast about this very question. I think that for my two cents, I think they're the, the, the hunters often pat themselves on the back for funding conservation, but the conservation that they tend to fund is to conserve the species that they want to hunt and yeah. not necessarily the species that Tony and I tend to care the most about, which are, which aren't on the radar of hunters. Like I want to see habitat protected so that bog turtles can thrive <laughs> and Tony, you know, maybe this, that, that, you know, warblers and, and, and interesting like songbirds and shorebirds. Sure, I, I, 
But I'm as, I've, I mean, I probably care way more about bog turtles than you realize. But yeah. Well, but the point being that, like, that, like, none of these are animals that that are part of the conservation circle, except by like, and I'm not gonna, and I'm not saying this to say that that land conservation doesn't matter for these species. I spent a lot of time in state game lands and wildlife management areas that are preserved for hunting, because I find lots of other cool stuff there that definitely happens. Um, but I still think. Um, we need to close, figure out like funding mechanisms for other stuff, so other non-game species can be center of conservation. Also, let's face it, the hunters aren't wrong; they're mostly right, right? But the thing is, is that the reason why they're right, the reason why hunting is the recreational activity that benefits conservation the most of anything, is because of capitalism. Because we live in a society where you have, where like you can't, the intrinsic value of biodiversity isn't enough. Yeah, you have to have another context that that has <laughs> economic value. And in Pennsylvania, so we have one of the largest networks of public land in the in the country, um, maybe the most per capita. I'm not sure. It's pretty. Cl- we have maybe the largest. We, I think we were like the third largest population of hunters, but it might be the, the the highest per capita of hunters. Like, we have such an incredible relationship with public land in Pennsylvania. It's crazy. It's funny because my wife's from Texas, and the exact yeah, opposite, like where Texas Jack, has like the least yeah, amount of public land yeah. per capita. It's crazy. But like, so like, I'm from a culture that I jokingly call Row House Rednecks, which I'm patenting, which I'm making a band about, which I'm making a, a, a YouTube channel. I think this should be your next podcast. Yeah. Rojas, I'm a Rojas redneck, and and so the so what's it's funny. I don't live. I actually live in a single family house, uh, home for the first time in my life. I've until I moved in this home with my wife. I've only ever lived in a home with where another dwelling was attached to it my entire life. So up until I was 44 or something, what people not from our area would call townhouses, right? Yeah. Or terraces in in England, right? Yeah. Um, but. Trust me, where I grew up was not a townhouse. It was a row house. <laughs> and anyway, like... I, I live in a twin, not a duplex. <laughs> right, but the funny thing is, 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 like, I basically have to turn sideways to walk between the ha- Billy's house and his neighbor. That's how narrow the space is. Like, <laughs> like, you literally have to, like... You wouldn't know he didn't live in a row house unless you were right staring directly <laughs> down the space between him, the, the, the house. The, you know, it's that narrow, right? Anyway, like... um. So my point is, like, so I grew up, like, in the city, like, for real, like, in a row house, like, with, there's a trolley line, you know, like, you know, very, very dense urban housing, you know, um, and it's funny, like, no exaggeration, you know, I try not to talk about my work too much, because I want to make it very clear that my opinions are not the opinion of my work, but I think people understand, do know that I work for the city of Philadelphia, I work for Philadelphia Parks and Recreation. I'm... Our commissioner, who just um, left, we, our commissioner appointed. They tend to change. We have a new mayor. We have a new mayor coming. She just left. She's great. anyway. When I first met my new commissioner almost eight years ago, I forget how, when she came on. She, she's from my neighborhood, and she literally looked at me and was like, "How did you get into nature being from where we're from?" Like that was her first reaction. Like knowing where we're from, how did you get into nature? Well, your dad was really into nature. Yeah. Well, yeah, but the thing is, is like. Even though people who live there don't even necessarily understand this. Like, I live in a very dense urban neighborhood, right? That's where I'm from. But it's, what's interesting is I think because 
Philadelphia is in Pennsylvania, which has this incredible network. New Jersey's not too bad either, especially for like fishing, right? It's funny. We grew up in a city. We're not on the coast, right? Pennsylvania doesn't have a saltwater, right? We have a slightly brackish, maybe estuary at the very southeast corner, but we don't we don't actually touch saltwater, right? So we're taking that on a coast. But I literally went to the coast and back the other day, just like on a whim. We're that close. We're you're, so you're just crossing New Jersey. We're so yeah. cl- Jersey's a tiny state. We're so close to the ocean of Pennsylvania and Philadelphia that the ocean is actually a part of our life. Like the the ocean is very much part of Philadelphia's life. People don't really understand that. But anyway, if you like fishing, you're in Jersey. There's a lot of opportunities to fish in Jersey. But my point is, is that I grew up in Philadelphia, very urban life. One of the densest. I think it's like tied with Chicago for densest city. Uh, second destined city. I think it's New York, then Philly and Chicago. And I think Philly would beat Chicago if you actually did the math and deducted our park system, because people don't live in our park system. My point is, because Pennsylvania has such an incredible network of public lands, that even though I lived in a row house, even though I didn't have a fucking backyard, I grew up hunting and fishing and camping. And it's an incredible network. So I call myself like, an, like a row house redneck, because like, like, I did a lot of the stuff that like they talk about in country songs because like <laughs> my dad's a firefighter working class. Like we went out like, you know, like I know they love getting cooler. Like literally when I got married, I married a Texan and like the groom's cake. I don't know if you know about groom's cake, but like in the South, especially Texas, like husbands get a cake that like reflects their personality. And I literally Googled groom's cake to figure out what this was. But I was like, you're going to groom's cake, right? And I'm like, what the hell is groom's cake? And literally multiple pictures showed up of groom's cakes with yeti coolers so i didn't grow up with yeti coolers i grew up with coleman cheap ass coolers but literally we would take a cooler full of rolling rock and like in yingling out to the out to the woods and like we would rent a a cabin in the state park hunt in the state park hunt in state game lands like this is how i grew up we were we really connected to nature and and the big woods of pennsylvania we call it big woods of pennsylvania pennsylvania is funny we Pennsylvania had 60% still left in the forest. We had this relationship with the forest, you know, um, with the woods, even though we're very urban. And why the hell did we start talking about this? I think we were talking about the, about hunters and, and meat eater. Right. About, like, so Pennsylvania has... So if you look at the map of Pennsylvania, you'll see it'll have all these green splotches. And we have all these green streaks because the mountains and Pen- the Appalachians are ridges that... Some of the ridges are literally hundreds of miles long, and a lot of the state gamelands are, are ridges. So you actually have all these green streaks in the middle of it. We have this incredible network of state gamelands. And so, yes, Pennsylvania, so much of the nature of the big woods of Pennsylvania is because of hunting-funded state gamelands. Right. And it is a legitimate thing, and it's a great thing. However, they manage it to always have a surplus of deer for hunters. And right. we all know that if you have a surplus of and have too many deer, they completely change the forest ecology right. in ways that, like, to the detriment of other wildlife. Yeah. And that is a problem. Someone made this joke, talking about feral hogs, and they're like, well, don't ever... Hunters are never going to solve the problem of feral hogs because hunters love hunting feral hogs, so they don't want them to go extinct. I mean, feral hogs... I mean, hunters are the main reason why feral hogs spread is because hunters transplant them to new places so they can hunt them. And, and so, like, yes, hunting in some ways... In the context of our fucked up system that doesn't value things unless there's like a mountain. If you, and much of Pennsylvania, people have off from school on the first day of deer season. 
you roll into these communities, they literally have banners that say, Welcome Hunters. It's a huge economic boon in Pennsylvania. I used to travel over the state for work, and I would go to meetings in, like, in early December, and, like, the first thing anyone talks about is, oh, did you get one this year? I'm like, oh, what'd you get this year? You know, and it's, it's all about, like, how, how you did in deer season. Um, but I think we've, we've covered that topic, bro, but I want to I mention a couple other things. Um, but, I, but we never answered the question. Do you think a lot of people listen to Meteor who aren't really into hunting? Well, my thought would be a lot of people did, and it might those numbers might have diminished now that they have now they're spoiled for choice and they can listen yeah, to other podcasts. Maybe, yeah. but but yeah, but see, Vanella, I mean, a lot of it is conversations about wildlife and and conservation and hunting. And, and, so and there's I'll, a lot here, of that in there. One hundred percent. Here's something I want to a point I want to make. So you know, people who if you listen to our podcast long enough, you know I've done a couple. My two main field research positions that I did in my life were in Alaska. And then before that, in the Canadian Arctic, um, one was a goose camp, one was a camp with ducks. And in both camps, the majority of people I worked with were hunters. And because, like, you know, waterfowl are hunted. And so the people who do the work to study wildlife that's hunted are mostly done by hunters. And I don't think people understand that, like, there's people with PhDs who are experts in these wildlife because they hunt them. And I don't think people understand that. It's so hard to understand why someone who literally kills something loves it. And, and and that is a legitimate thing. And that, like, hunters absolutely love the things that they hunt and want them to persist. And I understand that a lot of people don't, understand, don't get that. Anyway, Steve Rinella... Except for maybe coyotes, but keep going. True, but Steve Rinella... <laughs> yeah, but I think that's more like control rather than hunting. I mean, it's, it's a gray area there. But Steve Rinella is absolutely... He wrote a book, American Buffalo, and he was hunting a buffalo. And but I think he probably loves American, you know, American bison even more than I do. Although I do eat them sometimes too, but like you know, farm ones or whatever. But like you don't fly to Alaska and 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 put yourself in the like middle of freaking nowhere. Which is what exactly you have to, to raft Alaska, back. But yeah, it's a whole yeah. Yeah. In any case, so so that was our thought about quick thought about meter. I'm gonna actually be able to segue back to our conversation of the the, the day. Um, I want to mention a couple projects that 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 I'll pitch or, or just to to mention to folks on my end in the self promotion department. One, you can still get my book, Exploring Philly Nature: A Guide for All Four Seasons, at any place that you buy books. Um, you can also get one copy for free if you subscribe at the annual subscription basis to my Substack blog, Where the Brown Snakes Roam. So check that out if you like listening to this podcast. You might also like a weekly dose of nature writing about urban nature, um, and then. You know, th- this is a project that, like, I'm going to start talking about more because we couldn't figure out a way to turn it into a Kickstarter right away. But I've been talking with a local artist about putting together a Philly urban wildlife coloring book. Um, and we're still playing around with the idea, but keep your eyes out for, for that as a project. Basically what happened is the, the PA Game Commission, again, hunting-focused agency, put out a pretty good wildlife coloring book. It is I- not pretty good. It is. Phenomenal. It is phenomenal. And I use it to this day. Like, exactly. Yeah. It is incredibly useful. Um, it is the great thing to use when you want an arts art component to a program about some, pick your animal. You know, like you're doing something about groundhogs, doing something about deer, um, and you can pull out a coloring page that just is like this extra little thing that's so helpful when you're doing these programs. Um, and I want something like that that's more focused on the urban environment. 
um, and urban wildlife. And so it's funny you mention that because my buddy Josh Robe was in. We pitched something to the water department and didn't go for. That I think was a coloring book. Regardless, he made a whole page of migratory fish coloring book that uh, exists, and it's absolutely gorgeous. And of course, Atlantic sturgeon are part of it, as well as eels and striped yep. bass. Yep. And so we've, I'm working with a great artist, Meg Lemure, um, who's done some great stuff in the Philly area, and also some 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 great like anti-fracking activism, and just really swell person. Um, and so we're putting together some demo pages that we'll be getting out on social media. And we'll keep talking about it and try to figure out a way to fund it. And I also, as folks might know, I'm, I'm the managing editor at a magazine in Philadelphia called Grid, which is an environmental magazine. Um, we, uh, we've got a parks issue coming up, <laughs> um, which we'll, we'll, won't get too into at the risk of ranting about our day jobs too much. Um, but one of the things I put in there, and I don't need to get too mad at me about this, but and we're going to try to skate around this so we don't get into... To, talking about one of the few things Tony and I really disagree about. Um, there's not a lot that Tony and I disagree about. There's a, there's a golf course in, in the park system that they're redeveloping as a golf course. One of the reasons they're doing it is because of chronic flooding in, along the cr- creeks that run through it. Um, and so they're hiring an engineering firm. Well, hiring, it's a long, complicated chain of who's hiring whom. But basically, engineers are coming in to put in um, artificial wetlands, and to re-engineer the creek corridor and put in like sort of retention basins. And one of the things I've been struck by as I looked at this concept is that this is the kind of thing that beavers do anyways on their own. And there are beavers in that area. I found beaver sign in the golf course once, and there's definitely a lot of beavers active just downstream from the golf course. You know, I know this is not the way the world works, so this is like, in a way, a fanciful thought exercise. But we basically had an artist do like a rendering of like, what if this valley were turned over to beavers? You know, like what if it were like a, a complex of beaver ponds and wetlands and like regenerating forest and all that on the floodplain instead of uh, just maybe you still have golf holes up, upland from there. Could there be a way for beavers to fulfill something that we're like purposefully engineering as humans? Um, and so it's sort of like a, a playful exercise that way. Um, and that gets us to the topic of the day, Castor canadensis, the American beaver, uh, which is just like, you know, just a, a topic that I could, I do go on and on about forever. And I'll ask Tony, because he's the one who grew up here. I grew up in central Ohio and came to Philly 2004. When I got here, I was writing for Grid after a few years. Um, I wrote an article about beavers in oh, 2013, maybe? A long time ago. Um, but where they were just starting to be, I'll put it this way, a pain in the ass um, for park managers. Um, because there is a, this was in, in a, a creek that runs through North Philly, or the border of North and Northeast Philly, called Taconi Creek. Depending where you are in the creek, it's also called Frankfurt Creek or Tucani Creek. Tucani Tacony are more closer to the, the original Lenape name for the creek. But they had put in like a row of oak trees. Um, Dennis Mora, who you'll remember, mm-hmm. um, I interviewed him about it. And they it wasn't cheap to put in these plantings. And the beavers just took them all down. <laughs> like, and so, um, and he was talking about when he grew up, he didn't, they didn't have beaver in Tacony Creek when he was growing up. 
when was the first time you started being aware of beavers in Philadelphia waterways? It's crazy. I'll be 47 in August, so I'm at the age where like 10 and 20, 30 years are, are a lot. The time is 20 decades or so much. Well, start with when you were a kid in Mayfair. Like, so when I grew up in Philadelphia, going to Philadelphia parks, I, when I was a kid, being aware of nature, okay, I'm really in nature around 9, 10 years old. Mid-80s. Yeah, mid-80s. And I lived and then eventually moved closer to um, one of the large watershed parks in Philly. And I don't remember be. I think it was probably mid to late 90s at the earliest when beavers started coming back. And I remember there was an incident where there was literally a rabid beaver. I think this was... I think it was early 2000s, not late 90s. I think early 2000s, a rabbit beaver that attacked a few fishermen in Pennypack. Oh. And, and, um, so I think beavers have only really been uh, starting to come back in Philly within the last 20 years, if not more like the last 15. And it, especially in the last 10 to 5 years, they've been, you know, as you can imagine, things creep, you know, they, they start come, showing up, and then they, you know, the population builds. But within the last 10 years, it's been a thing in Philly. And what I think a lot of people don't realize is we tend to, you know, out east, we know this because people are always like, oh, you like nature, why don't you go out west, Rocky Mountain? But, like, we have a little bit of that out here where, like, we have mountains in our state. um, And people tend to think that's the wild areas, is the mountains, right? So Philadelphia is actually more or less equal distance between the mountains and the coast, right? But between Philadelphia and the coast is this big area called the Pine Barrens, which is full of, like, cedar creeks and rivers. And then also just south of that is, like, the Delaware Bay estuary. There's a lot of salt marshes and a lot of, like, um, estuaries and those cool little rivers that actually kind of go up into the Pine Barrens. So So we had two charismatic aquatic mammals that have kind of recolonized Philadelphia in the last 10 to 20 years, beaver and otter, river, you know, river otter. And I, I, they're not coming down from the mountains. They're coming up from the Delaware Bay, um, Pine Barrens watersheds that go, you know, I, I, I don't think they're coming down from the mountains. I think they're actually coming up. Right. You don't think they could also be coming down from like the Poconos or, I don't or... think, I, I, I think it's possible, but I think they're actually, I think, because they've maintained the populations in those areas, and I think they've actually come up from the, from the east, from east and south, more than they come down from the north. Could be, could be. I, and yeah. anyway, so because because Cobb's Creek um, was an area that really got into beavers soon too, and so I think that like I think beavers, you know, um, so yeah, and the, so the problem with beavers is, you know, they have this um, innate behavior where they want to make dams and they want to chew trees and the problem with beavers is that they they inhabit to they're aquatic but they go they're like mini hippos they're aquatic but then they go on shore at night to eat vegetation <laughs> and i'm going to start calling them mini hippos now and 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 so as you can imagine like i don't know if you, you know if you you know philadelphia most of our parks are associated with these with the creeks that we not turned into sewers right and so what we have are like, so, so yeah, the aquatic component is substantial, but the terrestrial component to beavers have it is very narrow. 
So the problem is, is that when they're chewing trees, you know, because they can't help themselves because they want to make dams and, and lodges and everything. Well, they want access to the twigs towards the top of the trees to eat. Yeah. And that... And, and bark that, to strip off. That yeah. area is very narrow. The terrestrial part is very narrow because you literally, these be if you go too far, you literally go into row houses that we're talking about. Like, this, that's, it's that dramatic. So they have like, they have plenty of water because we're out east. We're, we're borderline rainforest conditions. We have tons of water. So we have a big ass, we have two big, we have one very large river, Delaware. Uh, by the way, most of, the, if you're out west in the United States, most of what we call creeks, you would call rivers. I know. I was in San Antonio once and like, I was a kid and they're like, this is the San Antonio River. I was like, that's not a river. You literally, in Southeast Arizona, there's the San Pedro River. It's one of the few things that rivers are going north. You could step across it. <laughs> you are, literally, no exaggeration. Well, because these things are defined by their length as opposed to, to how wide they are. Yeah, but like, yeah. Because we get so much rain here that, like, even if it's short, it's wide. Like, you, like, yeah, like, the the creeks in Philly are rivers anywhere else. And then our rivers are, Delaware's a big-ass river. And, no, and the Susquehanna, sorry, the Schuylkill River, is, which we think of as tiny because it's not nearly as big as Delaware, is a major river anywhere else in, in farther west. It's, so, anyway, the beavers have a big, a huge river, which what maybe isn't the largest undammed river on the east coast it's a mass it's a big deal Delaware's a huge deal and then we have the schuylkill which is a pretty big deal and then we have all these other creeks and then we have the tributaries and the so beavers have that habitat but the forest habitat is narrow because it's only right so it, they can really devastate it pretty quickly so yeah. our, our our system has like you know done this like repairing forest restoration that like took you know 10 years to establish in a beaver and literally in like a week and you take it out. So no, it's, I, it's, I've seen them girdling like, like, like four foot diameter oak trees. You know, and I'm like, yeah, it's a, it's, it's, <laughs> it's a problem, and you know, yeah. it's kind of a good problem to have because you want your wildlife to rebound, but like, you know, they're that, challenging to live with. Yeah, because you know they're, you know, I mean, we 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 just talked a whole about deer. Well, like you know, deer, in the absence of their predators, in 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 the context of like. You know, patches of forest in in a rural agricultural or suburban or urban landscape, like they can really, you know, when deer really, you know, change the the plant community because they favor some trees over others. And beavers, you know, um, same thing. Yeah, so it's it's a challenge, and you know, um, yeah, and we're still I, people. I, I don't think we've totally figured out how to deal with it. Um, I think the the in some there's a place where they've were in a in along the Schuylkill River, um, an area called um, Martin Luther King Drive, uh, and there's a series of ornamental cherry trees. Yeah, like people don't think about Philadelphia for cherry trees because you know Washington D.C. is not very they far away. Corner of the it, market on that, yeah. It has this, you know, is renowned for its cherry tree blossoms. Philadelphia, it, it, we offer a very similar experience with our cherry blossoms is is a, is very gorgeous awesome. and, yeah. and, and if it wasn't for dc it would be world renowned you know our cherry blossoms you know outside of japan so and come to philadelphia for the cherry blossoms right but the problem is is that they're all along a river that now have beavers in them and they're and they're, and they're girdling <laughs> so they've them. had to like put cages around the cherry yeah. trees and stuff um and it's it's and i think people don't expect them 
in a way that they might expect other wildlife that have been around longer. Like I'll go on walks with people who aren't, who, who know a little bit about nature and I'll be like, there's a stump. There's a stump. That bush has been trimmed back by beavers. I, I can yeah. like point out the beaver sign all around us. I'm like, there's the slide. They probably go right in the water right there. And like people just don't expect it. And I think once you know what you're looking for, you'll in, a, in Philadelphia. And I think in a lot of cities in the continent, you're going to see beaver sign everywhere. And, one of the most fun things, one of the, the, the things I find exciting about the beavers returning, um, aside from them just being cool animals, and by the way, these aren't like muskrats or gophers or like groundhogs. Like a beaver can, beavers can get to be like 60 pounds. <laughs> like they're, they're big animals. And like I have, I have seen. I'm not, if I'm not mistaken, aren't they like the second largest rodent? Like, maybe, like... Pretty close, if not... Yeah, like, capybara and then, like, beavers are pretty close Yeah, I, I was literally, like, um, talking to my buddy the other day about otters, and, like... Otters are bigger than you think they are, too, man. Well, that's the whole point. It was yeah. that, like, he was talking about otters, and I was like, you, do you... I'm like, do you realize that, like, our river otters can be five feet long and weigh 40... Almost 40 pounds? Like, that's a big animal. You know, like, like, like... Like, that, it's funny, like, people don't realize, like, they think otters are, like, four pounds and, like, three feet long at the, because of their tail. Like, they're, otters are big, and beavers are big, you know, you know. Well, no, beavers are, according to, I just pulled up a Wikipedia list, beavers are the second largest, ex, North American beavers are the second largest extant, in other words, non-extinct, um, rodent right now, and it is. What's number one, porcupine? Number one's capybara. Oh, North America. Oh, yeah. sorry. The North American beaver on the list of world rodent Worldwide, sizes. yeah, yeah. Um, and this lists them as being up to 110 pounds, which I have a hard time imagining. Um, yeah, this is usually weigh something more like, like we were talking about, 60 is a big beaver. Um, but point being, these are significant animals. Yeah. And um, when you see one, like I, I was once about to jump in the, jump in the Delaware River upstream from Philly. Um, and go look snorkel for turtles. And I was like just sort of scouting out along the bank. And I had this moment, which I've gotten used to now, but, you know, 10 years ago, I was like, is that, what is that? That's a beaver. And then, like, and that thing is huge. And then at that moment, like, it saw me and, like, slapped the water and dove and scared the hell out of me because they're really loud when they slapped the water. And this sounds weird to say this, but I wonder if, like, and you're talking to someone who's, I weigh what I weighed the other day, like 213 pounds. I used to weigh, I won't weigh 317 pounds, right? I lost But the reason I bring that up is, I wonder if like human obesity has skewed our view of how big animals are. No, I think people just haven't seen beavers very much. No, but hear me out. Like the fact that like humans, some humans can get, you know, well over 200 pounds. But like humans weren't normally, you know. I think I think literally the average American male weighs about two hundred pounds, or more, and like that's not that's recent, right? And the reason I bring that up is that like, is, is and like we have dogs that have been bred. And like people don't realize that like humans are a large animal. There's not much animals bigger than us, except for like some 
few megafauna. And yes, they can get really, really big. But I feel like we don't like, we don't like, we if, don't. If humans your reference point, you've kind of got a skewed sense of how. That's big why mammals exactly are. we're yeah. skewed, and like we don't realize that like we don't think of like there's a lot of things out there that are a lot bigger than you realize, and like because most things are a lot smaller. Most things are like under a pound. You know what I mean? Like in, and so like, you know a, you know. Even if beavers didn't get 60 pounds, I mean, that's like a big, I mean, I know a huge example, you know, like extreme outliers could be 110 pounds, but like a 30 or 40 pound animal, it's a pretty big it's animal. It's a medium sized dog. Yeah. It's a big animal. And 60 pounds is a big dog. And also, also, wild animals are a lot stronger and more capable pound for pound than domesticated animals or humans at the equivalent weight. Oh, yeah. Humans, you know, for sure. Like, you know, yeah, the average male, American male, weighs more than a wolf. A wolf would annihilate you, you know? Yeah, now, if you were trying to arm wrestle a gorilla of your same size, you'd get your ass kicked. You'd get your arm ripped off. Yeah, no, there. I was reading something, there's a study about this years ago, about how, I think on average, it's about, we are about pound for pound, like a pound of muscle per pound of muscle, we are about half as strong as most other mammals. Yeah. Um, and th- there's ideas about how it has to do with how our body, our physiology is devoted much more to our brains than to our muscles compared to taking just our nearest relatives like like primates. Um, but I, yeah, it's, it's... I don't know if I can win a fight against a 60-pound otter. <laughs> you know what I'm Like saying? if you tried to wrestle one? Yeah. That's an interesting question. How would you ever be in the circumstance of wrestling with an otter? But um, but no, you, yeah, you, you're 100 percent right. Um, yeah, it's a. But I, I'll, I want to dive into what for me is a hopeful dimension of this, which is that, um, uh, which is that, beavers, have been missing from Philadelphia or what was previously Philadelphia, for about 350 years, um, which. Like, we'll take us back in time now. We'll say, okay, when we think of of the, the colonization of North America, we usually start, for understandable reasons, maybe you start with the Spanish and in Mexico and in Florida. But most of us, in, in our United States-centric perspective, where we are, we start with, like, the the Puritans in Massachusetts and the planters in Virginia, right? But, like, pretty soon after that, you had a lot of, of, of other, besides England, other countries, um, you had the Dutch, you had the Swedes, the French, coming in to, to trade in North America. And in, in the, the Delaware Valley, you know, we had the Dutch and the Swedes being the major players at first to trade with, um, with the Lenape. And whether you were in French Canada... Or, or here, um, the thing that the Europeans were coming to trade for, for the most part, was beaver pelts. Beaver pelts, um, and so it's, it's. We have a beaver pelt at work. It is luxurious. It's I luxurious, guess. but like I understand this. Initially, it was the pelts, I guess, but pretty soon it was that you could make felt out of the undercoat of mm. beaver pelts, and that felt is particularly good. At, at for hats and stuff like that, um, which seems like such a niche thing. It doesn't seem like that big a deal. Like, why would you wipe out the continent's species 
for hats. But that's basically what happened, is that um, right away, like you have, I'm trying to track this down, but I'm sure I read, I read it somewhere, a letter or an account by um, Governor Prince, who was an early Swedish governor of the colony of New Sweden. PRNZ, not like PRNZ. Good point. Um, in the mid-1600s. Um, and he was, he was basically saying, like, the beaver are all trapped out here. We're trading for the beavers from further inland. Um, and as a little, as, this could turn into a long side note, that trade, um, this has just been a topic I've been reading about more and more lately, the trade in beavers um, was incredibly destabilizing uh, to, to, north, to, the, to the indigenous peoples of our continent, or especially like the northern half of the continent where, um, or the northern half of what's now in the United States where beavers are around and where they have better pelts in the winter, basically. Um, but like in our local area, we had like the Lenape and the immediate neighbors to the west were the Susquehannocks. They had a war basically to try to control the trade of goods with the Europeans. And most of that trade, the money was in the beavers. Um, and then you had the Iroquois, uh, I think it was five or six nations. I'm getting embarrassed that I can't think of that right now. Um, I think six nations, five nations. Okay. Well, in any case, the Iroquois went on this, this basically campaign of expansion starting in the late six, mid 1600s, late 1600s, where they sort of like started in, you know, what we now think of as upstate New York and then like expanded out across the Great Lakes, conquering territory and sort of subjugating other indigenous groups so they could keep control of the beaver trade as beavers got trapped out and that sort of horizon of trapping shifted west and north. Um, And you had, like, massive displacements of other indigenous groups in other parts of the continent. You have, like, I'm reading a book right now, um, which is called Thundersticks, Firearms and Violent Transformation of Native America, by David J. Silverman. In any case, this book, this book, Thundersticks, is sort of focusing on the trade in firearms and then powder and, and lead, uh, but sort of as how basically as, as indigenous groups that traded either directly or indigenous indirectly with Europeans got their hands on guns, you then would have the first tribes with the guns, first indigenous groups with the guns, would then be in a power position relative to the, everybody else to dominate whatever trade that they wanted to capture slaves, whatever else. And then you had these arms races among different groups um, and wars, you know, sort of erupting to control trade, partly so that, A, I mean, just for wealth in general, but also because if your neighbors got more guns than you did, you were screwed. Um, and so, any case... A lot. My, what I'm getting at is a lot of this just traced back to beavers, um, which is just something I've, I had a hard time sort of getting my head around. But it's sort of what the cash right. good was. Um, there's a book that I need to get my hands on still called Beaverland: How One Weird Wrote It Remade America by Layla Phillip. Um, I think is about just this. Um, but what I was getting at with all this before I got into this tangent about North American history and beavers um, is that. 350 years is a long time. <laughs> and like they came back because of very intentional reintroduction campaigns. Um, maybe some, yeah, I mean, they, they didn't get wiped out completely because I think basically Europe 
fashion or Europe, European trade with the Far East enabled silk to displace beaver felt as the hat material of choice. That's one thing that saved the beavers. What is also crazy is is that there's also a beaver species in Eurasia. Yeah, that, it did, like, that was getting wiped out also. Yeah. And, and like, and so the... And they thought it was, it wasn't until fairly recently that they split the species. Like, we thought there was just one beaver. I think the Eurasian ones have shorter legs or something like that. Yeah, but like, it wasn't until fairly recently. Yeah. Like it's been, I think until DNA, you know, evidence, you know, came about. Yeah, so they, so, <coughs> but basically in the 20s, I know in Pennsylvania, probably other states similarly, they started reintroducing beavers. Um, again, not that recently, I mean, recently compared to the 1650s, but... Was it, am I wrong? Is it reintroduction of beavers in the Poconos in the big woods of Pennsylvania that trickled down, or is it beavers from, like, other thing from the... I mean, it could have been beavers reintroduced right. in New Jersey and Maryland that trickled up. We don't know. Yeah. Um, so it's so yeah. I don't know how we can answer your your hypothesis is. I think just as valid as the coming from the PA wilds because if you're following waterways, um, you know it. It. I could see if we were sitting in Harrisburg, which is on the Susquehanna River, talking about beavers there. Yeah, the PA wilds. You can see that the Susquehanna drainage would feed down from the places where they were introducing the beavers. I'm not sure if they were introducing them in the Poconos. And so in that case, the Delaware strange is a little bit more isolated from where they would have been introducing them. That's an interesting question. But, like, it could have been either way. But basically, state game agencies in the early, well, early mid-1900s started introducing beavers. And that's where our beavers today come from. Um, and so when I, whenever I get depressed about ash trees getting wiped out by emerald ash borers or emerald ash borers um, or chestnut trees having been mostly wiped out or elm trees or now beech trees, which is starting to freak me out getting wiped out. Yeah. yeah. Um, that like, I'm like, that's awful. Hopefully it'll be faster than 350 years, but like there are comebacks. Well, yeah. So um, what's funny is I'm about to pick up an, a, another course in the fall or I teach, um, I adjunct on the side where I'm going to be talking about succession and and disturbance. We're and what talking I, about the ecological phenomenon, not the TV show. Exactly. I have yet to see it. Apparently, it's a phenomenal show. Yeah. Um, Brian Cox, right? He's, he's a great Yeah, actor. I just can't get into a show about billionaires now. Yeah. I mean, they shouldn't exist. We should take their stuff and redistribute it. Anyway, so what I love about ecology is that everything's ecology. Everything's connected. And my department... You know, we met. We actually like manage um, meadows. Um, <laughs> you know, um, be, because you try to freeze succession. Yeah, um, because so out east in you know, like I said earlier, we're borderline rainforest conditions and how much rainfall we have. And unless the soil is very thin, very poor, or has like a bedrock of serpentinite with like toxic um or very sandy environments this area of the country should be forest right um it's hard it's so moist and rainy that it's hard to have fire fire in unless you have sandy soil and 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 which drains water very quickly and therefore you have more pines with you know. well without humans actively setting fires for driving game and agriculture right but even that i can't imagine was 
difficult. Our, it, I mean, if you ever, well, you would have a much, you're right, much. Anybody's ever camped in this part to, of the country, yeah. and not brought and not like bought can't and not bought um firewood, it's a pain in the ass to start a campfire because it's very moist. You know, we're just north of the Salamander biodiversity, Salamander diversity capital of the world. And salamanders don't like dry conditions. We know this. Like, it's it a very wet part of the country. So, um, anyway, one of the... So, one of the... If you're going to have grassland, grassland out in this part of the country is temporary state. You had some sort of disturbance and... It's only like five to ten years that that area would have come back. The landscape got due to trees for whatever reason. You only have like five to ten years before it basically becomes like, you know, forest again or like young teen, young forest. So we have to like actually actively maintain areas to replicate that. Now, one of them, you know, um, and one of the major way, reasons we had these temporary grasslands was beavers. They would dam a creek or crick if you're from where i'm from and it would flood a small about west philadelphians i've gotten like or, or I, I my barber who's from fairmount no he's not he's from overbrook i'm sorry mm. he's from overbrook which is a west philadelphia neighborhood one said to me we don't say crick we say creek in overbrook <laughs> it's funny it's well again the roadhouse redneck thing like right from northeast philly kensington says crick which is and a lot of rural Pennsylvania says Crick, too. So, yeah. again, that connection. Anyway, so my father says Crick. I say Crick by default, I think. Um, unless I think about it as a Creek. One talking to someone who's not from Philadelphia. Well, my mother-in-law is from Thorpe, and the book of says Crick. Yeah. yeah. So, you have a stream, a small moving body of water. Beaver puts a dam over it. That small valley floods. It kills the trees. And then, eventually... There'll be a pond will form, and eventually you'll silt in, right? And then you'll have this little area of grassland until it becomes forest again, right? That was a major factor in our ecosystem, in our ecology out here. Well, we killed the beavers up, so we stopped that. Also, our creeks are all, um, they're not what they used to be. They used to be more like a braided a system of, like, you know, braided channels, in a wide floodplain. Now they're like much more deep and, and narrow, but they used to like um, have oxbows and change and it would flood out. And so our grasslands were, um, I, I, I got to interrupt you there. I, I think like my, my thinking, my thinking of it has been that like grasslands, yes, that's one origin of grasslands, but also that like, as long as there's been agriculture, indigenous agriculture too, you would have had anthropogenic grasslands, which would have been like fallow, like fallowed fields, or like tapped out fields that you're. If you're doing sort of slash and burn, you're going to cut down the next stretch of forest, and then for five or ten years, that grows back as meadow before it grows in. Well, absolutely, they, yeah. yeah. I mean, and and I don't think of people again. We're wildlife podcast. Obviously, we don't think of people as like being not natural, right? Yeah. But my point is, is that historically one of the probably major reasons we had little meadows or whatever were beavers. Yeah. Uh, obviously people, you know, and you know, the first nations and their agriculture were, um, probably increased. So, um, these, these temporary grasslands, 
it's funny because like people talk about like decline in grassland birds like it's a problem and like yo i'm a birder yeah i love my favorite birding spot which is debate my existence is actually just like a half a mile outside city limits philadelphia is dixon meadow because it's just like a spot i can bike to and is because like the fall conditions of our area should be forest right so far you know i love forest birds don't get me wrong but like birders like unusual things so the closest a little bit of variety <laughs> so there's a spot where i can see some grassland stuff um and so it's i like going there because you never know what's going to show up there yada 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 but anyway um grasslands are like a big deal out here because they're not the normal conditions and until people modified the landscape um with farming and then it would fallow and grass you know beavers were one of the major ways we had these little meadows out here and, and it's funny that like my my department while we're plagued by beavers you know eating up our river birch and sweet gum plantain you know plantings is like trying to try to you know repairing forest or our ornamental cherry trees we're also literally like make like put brush hogs every of the year through these areas to kind of like perpetuate a like five year state of succession and one of the things is basically trying to replicate what beavers used to do. Yeah, yeah. You know? And I think uh, the, the, just another little thought on meadows, risk of too much tangents, um, which is that when you read, like I have and, and some of our friends do, maybe you have too, when you read like the earliest naturalist accounts, like, which will be European naturalist accounts of the Philly area, you're reading um, uh, like the Bartrams, you're reading, um, what's the doctor, Barton? Um, Benjamin Barton, I think, um, and you're, you're maybe Peter Calm, uh, you're reading the earliest accounts, they talk about, basically there's a ton of grassland birds, um, like what we call um, bobolinks, they, what they call them? Rice, rice birds, yeah. Rice birds were really common, and like, it took me a minute to sort of stop and think that like, oh, prior to the automobile, we had to feed horses hay, mm -hmm. which meant that we had meadows all over the place growing yeah. hay. And so you sort of, it, it's sort of a, it, 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 a technological shift sort of like resulted in a certain kind of landscape shift where you didn't need tons of meadows right next to the city anymore um, or on the, just on the outskirts of the city. And so right there you lost habitat for a whole suite of animals and probably plants too. However... Were they ever that before people came here, before people modified the landscape, be it First Nations or Europeans, how much of these, how much Dick Sissel, Bobolink, yeah, Meadowlark did know. we actually have out here? I, I got to think that we had not out, how far did Bison reach? I mean, I know like Western well, PA. No, I, I'm not sure exactly, but remember there's also Woodland Bison. So I do no, think we true. had bison out here, but yeah. No, it's, it's a very difficult thing to answer. In any case, it's, but Tony's making a point, which I, I'll expand on a little bit, which is that in a non, in, in, you know, outside of a city especially, but really outside of like, and this we could blame sort of, I think, European land ownership structures, like, like, we used to have much more we, the planet has always had much more dynamic landscapes than we tend to have today, especially in a city um, where like we're just talking about bog turtles. Bog turtles are this 
adorable little turtle that's near extinct. I think sliding towards extinction. Uh, absolutely, um, there's no way it can't be. It, it basically. It. She it, was a box turtle, unfortunately. Eventually well, that's too. a whole other time. But yeah, but but bog turtles basically rely on, on, on uh, in our area. They rely on sort of marshes that are kind of temporary, that are part of big systems of beaver-produced landscapes in different stages of succession. But that that meadow might grow in with red maple and and not or a wet meadow might grow in with red maple and become a forest. And but then you'd have another patch like a hundred yards away, upstream or downstream that was just growing in from being a pond into a wet meadow. Same with right? a golden wing warbler. Yeah. And so you have these very, you, you, we sort of had this ver- this dynamism in the landscape. And now when you have, but there's no dynamism when it's a subdivision or if it's a, it's a warehouse or there's a big road cutting through it that stops my, wildlife from moving from one side yeah, to the like, other. I feel like, I think like cerulean warbler is a, is a species decline dramatically. And I feel like, I have to look at the literature recently. Wouldn't that one be using Climax State Forest? I th- I have I could be look, I'm gonna I'm gonna make a disclaimer here that I'm speaking from something I don't know how much I know about. Yeah. I I feel like I remember for what I can think of what was really warbler is people were like, Why is this species declining so rapidly? And I think what people said all one of the things I heard was that um they like nest much they nest like they forage uh, or nest lower but the males sing high and that like the, you associate them with big white oak trees right and forests <coughs> with a lot of big white oak trees and i'm sure about that but um what i remember about i have to read you know what i remember was really warbler was the thought was that they they forage they nest and they sing at different levels in a forest and and that, like, and with, like, openings or whatever, and, like, and the, the idea was that it's hard to understand why they're so, re- they're declining, but the thought was, back in the day, when you had, I mean, there was this, this trope, I don't know, how, you know, that, like, a squirrel could go from the Atlantic to the Mississippi and not touch the ground because it was, the eastern forest was that big. Yes, but because of tornadoes, nor'easters, hurricanes, beavers, Native Americans, floodplains, like oxbows, you name it. Because this landscape, even though it was, yes, it was this massive forest, but when you had a forest that massive, literally half a continent, or, well, obviously the Boro Forest, or a quarter of a continent of a massive landscape, <coughs> you would never really have enough disturbance yeah. to make, you know, be... It's much more heterogeneous than your, than that. Yeah. Right. So in this, in the context of, I guess millions and millions and millions of square acres of forest, enough disturbance that you would have enough temporary grasslands, temporary succession, temporary sedge meadows that became, you know, you would have enough habitat where superlink warblers, golden wing warblers, bog turtles, all these species would have this, even though they're they're adapted to this very ephemeral very you know temporary set of conditions <coughs> you had an entire landscape you had a you know talking about from massachusetts to southern michigan to northern louisiana 
to Georgia, you're talking about that area to work with. Yeah. Right? And we and that we've lost, right? And so and like, we've frozen it in a way. And yeah. that and that like um what well, like I'll be controversial sometimes we'll talk about Philadelphia. I'm like, well I'm happy to, to trade a few acres of mature forest for a wetland. And people are like, but these trees are hundred years old. I'm like, well, we don't have hardly any wetlands. You know, it's like you have to make these hard decisions to manage landscapes when we don't allow disturbance like we used to. I mean, you know, succession is such a part of how things were. Yeah, you know? yeah. And we stopped it. You know, we, you know, again, we didn't have that many fires, natural fires. You know, I mean, hey, people are nature natural. So, you know, First Nations having fires, I'm not saying it's not natural, but like the Pine Barrens used to probably be, we used to have a prairie chicken species, a subspecies out here called the heath hen. Yeah, yeah. And, and if you look at the, you think about where, you know, where we actually, you know, the greater prairie chicken is, is a tall grass prairie uh, species um, where it persists now. Um, and you think about where we live in the East Coast, like where, where, where would the habitat be? Well, well, someone on like dune systems and like, well, the yeah, like we have, a, so, you know, glaciers deposit a lot of sand on the East Coast. Sand drains water much more rapidly than clay, you know, cl more clay-based, you know, silty, loamy soils um, that retain more moisture. So even though, like, it has the same rainfall, the sandy um, outer coastal plain, you know, in from the Carolinas all the way up to, you know, Long Island, Island yeah. would have had, would have actually been a lot more, like, savanna, if not prairie, tall grass prairie like because of fire ecology but we suppressed the fires so it became more you know like oh yeah like no there's some places and like i i found this in cumberland county in new jersey where you've got it's still pine barrens but you've got it's not like the dwarf pine forest it's like taller pine trees with sort of more parkland kind of like open grassy area around yeah. in between the trees yeah and like we don't use the term we talk about woods in Nassau. We talk about woodland. Woodland is like, is like between savanna and forest is woodland. And we talk about woodland in like, they talk about that in Australia. You know, we would, our pine barrens are kind of like woodland. That's what we're called woodland, where it's like, almost, it's like between savanna and forest, um, where you have like a semi, you know, you don't have most of, you know, really in Pennsylvania, we have a completely closed forest. You barely see sunlight, right? And I think traditionally it would have been almost completely dark. Um, but the Pine Barrens, which is now like the semi-open canopy woodland in a lot of parts of the world, would have think of it a lot more like traditional, what we think of Savannah, where like the trees didn't even touch, if not like almost like this like coastal grassland where this tall grass prairie grouse would have been. Also, I have heard like, you know, I'm getting really into cryptozoology and like kind of weirdness, but like I heard one of the possible origins of the legend of the Jersey Devil w was, and who knows if this is true at all? Obviously, I don't know. Is that Sandhill Crane would have been like the the no this, you know Sandhill Cranes the noise they made might have been the you know part of legend of the Jersey Devil and Sandhill Cranes like you know um, you don't find them out east hardly like you do more in the Midwest and that, but they probably, I think there's much more of a Sandhill Crane population on here. 
because there would have been, you know, um, much more open because they like wetlands, but they also like kind of like wet prairies. So they might, Sandhill Cranes might have been more out here. And, you know, so we would have had this like, you know, because we suppressed fire ecology, we probably would have before, you know, now we have, we think of the Pine Barrens, you know, they look drastically different than, than the, the forests of Pennsylvania that are much, you know, cathedral-like, you know, very dense. But originally it would have been a lot more open. And, 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 um, I, so. I, I want to mention a book. I was just looking this up. Um, called 16th, I read this one, 16th Century North America, The Land and People as Seen by Europeans by uh, Carl Sauer, S-A-U-E-R, um, where he was going to like the earliest accounts because the, the one of the awful things that happened to the colonization was the epidemics that wiped out lots of people so that um, the initial Europeans who first made contact saw a much more populated eastern area like we live in now than, let's say, the next waves of colonizers. Um, so that so that his are kind of taking those observations like from the, the champ, you know, well, not about the top of my head, the very earliest explorer, European explorers in eastern North America was of woods that were much more open, much more cultivation happening, much more densely populated. Um, then we that so it wasn't really wilderness. A lot of the woods that we're talking about, you're right, were much more open landscapes maintained by fire, um, often very intentionally to cultivate sort of grass for deer or to drive deer or to open land for agriculture. Um, so that's a great book. I want to throw in another book real quick because my my point is still that like that that our land ownership system is a lot to blame for this because we sort of freeze land in certain, in sort of like, kind of like the uh, property regime, um, which you wouldn't have seen in North America up until the 1600s. Um, but uh, William Cronin, Changes in the Land, classic environmental history um, about sort of the, the, the clash of how indigenous peoples saw land use and not ownership, really, but land use and how that clashed with how the English thought of how one should own and use land. It's a, environmental history is also a social issue because that's, a lot of that was used to dispossess the Native Americans because the, the English saw the way, didn't see them as legitimately occupying the land. But Cronin, just always got to say this, wrote Nature's Metropolis, which if you're a guy who studied, anybody who studied economics and is an environmentalist, is like one of the greatest book ever. Um, but Changes in the Land and then that Carl Sauer book, um, just really great stuff about like, uh, you know, we were we were ranting about capitalism earlier in the evening, um, but I want to spend as much time ranting about how we own land. Like it yeah. is, it is, you're talking about taxes. Like it is absolutely absurd that one can own a plot of land the size of Rhode Island and you have this, it's just yours. Like yeah. you can keep people out. Like a whole lot of the world doesn't see land that way. Like if you're in Sweden, Scotland, like a lot of places where like you can, yeah, you can say like a certain like distance around your house. Maybe, I don't know, 50 yards, hundred yards. Right, I don't know. Yeah. Like, yeah, you can, no one can go there, but like you can't stop someone from hiking through your land and camping, you know, like, like the, the idea that we can like, take 
you know, like out west, you know, like tracts of land that are for us. You talk about King Ranch? Is that what you're yeah, I talk about yeah. King Ranch. Which is like, funny because like King Ranch is like, they do all this great conservation work, but you're also like, that's great, but you probably shouldn't exist either. <laughs> you know what I mean? I know. Or like just plots of land out west where you've got like, when you listen to these podcasts about hunting, they get really into this question of like how you can have a public state forest or like Bureau of Land Management land, but because there's private land all around it, no one can get to that public land. Um, and like, that's just, that's just absurd. <laughs> yeah. Like, like it just doesn't like, like, and people are like, Oh, well, we respect private property. I'm like, I don't respect private property. <laughs> it's funny. I saw like a interview. Recently. No one needs that much property, man. <laughs> uh, funny. I saw an interview recently with somebody that was like, I forget who it was. Maybe it was a Lex Friedman podcast. It was someone, I forget who the guy was, but he was like, He's someone that's considered to be very far left, and he makes the circuit on, like, different, like, podcasts and stuff. Yeah. But he was like, you don't, you guys don't get it. He's like, you all freaked out about communism in the United States. He's like, even, like, nobody in the United States, like, private property is so ingrained that, like, even the farthest leftists still believe in private property on some fundamental level. Like, you don't have to worry about communism coming to the United States, like... Nobody can comprehend what that actually means out here. Don't you don't have to worry about it. You know what I mean? But it's like so yeah. true. I mean, like I, I, I didn't even meet. Like, right? I'm sitting here saying, like, okay, yeah, I could like, private property in my house, sure. <laughs> like, but my house doesn't occupy a big footprint. Like, I, I've I've chosen this place partly because of that. I'm not saying like like I'm defining it's so. Yeah. My, my normative standards based on what I prefer in a way it's the other way. I, I've sort of said, no, I, I want to live in a densely occupied place and I don't think it makes sense to have a big yard. I, like I, I but, I, but we're talking about beyond yards. We're talking about like, I'm, I think it's, this is how what you, to make your point, a leftist like us still says, yeah, you can have a house and yard. What we're saying is like, you shouldn't have hundreds of acres that you shut everyone else out of 100 like like it's funny like my um, wife and i talk about maybe it's well i know you know this you have two kids i have one but when you're paying for your child's you know child care and you think about how much you're paying for that and then when they eventually hopefully go to public school and you don't have to pay for that well now you have oh, that's so wonderful man over a thousand dollars a month that you don't have to it's like you got no job <laughs> right but i'm like well maybe we should buy a vacation home or some property but like <laughs> no i'm torn with that very urge too <laughs> but like i i never think about like buying like dozens of acres i think about buying a property i know what you're gonna say near public land what's the expression you want to hear backs up against backs up against <laughs> i think about yeah i never think about like i want dozens of acres i think about like no i want a little house that backs up against a state game land <laughs> and i kind of have that here where like you know i live not even 100 feet from one of the largest missile parks in the country in yeah fact, it's one of the reasons you chose this house right in yeah. fact i have to um i literally had to like look up lot um lot lines just think to to know whether or not my property, my house. By the way, when I saw my property, I live on a tenth of an acre, I which is big <laughs> for Philadelphia. Um, I had to like actually like um 
look up the lot lines. Our, our lot is like, I think, 20 feet by 80 feet. Yeah. <laughs> I had to look up, like, um, I think I, I might actually, I think I definitely have at least as much, if not a little bit more, yard than house footprint here. I think I do. Um, but I had to look up lot lines to see whether or not we actually abutted the park at all. Because, like, there's an area that, like, I can't tell if it's a yard, if it's park. It's, like, next to my house. I think it's technically someone's yard. But I think it's actually, like, two different neighbor's yards that they don't maintain that, like, effectively means the park or it touches my house. But it's technically people's property. Um, regardless. But to me, I'm, like, I want to I wanna be able to, like, walk from my house to, to a large area of natural space. But I don't necessarily want my, my own property to be... A large area in natural vegetation that exclude other people from enjoying. Yeah, that's not you know like something, you know I I want um and um even in Philadelphia like we're in a good position to be able to own houses. You know I think yeah. this is as, as we think about why public land is important, even in like a city like Philadelphia, is that I don't know probably not the majority but a good chunk of Philadelphians don't own a home. They rent a house or they rent an apartment. I do think, though, that Philadelphia has, for a big, dead city, East Coast City, like, not, you know, like... We have a high rate of home ownership, yeah. Because we have the most row homes. We have the most people living in attached homes. While other cities of similar density to us, more people live in apartments. True. So, I so guess- Philly's the capital of the house party. By yeah. the way. So I think the the I guess what I'm getting at is that like it, there's a weird there's sort of a perverse American like fantasy that like like the way to get access to land is to get rich enough so you can buy it. Like not to ensure that like we have great public lands for everybody to access. And it's funny, I'm I think you remember me talking about this before I married somebody and to be completely honest, I have because of my wife I have triple the, I tripled our income, but, but not just doubling or one and a half. My wife makes twice what I do. I make pretty decent money. Don't get me wrong, I'm a civil servant, but my, you know, whatever. I have more options because of my wife's salary, and then some, right? I well, when I thought about my life as a single person with a civil servant salary, for most people out there, school teacher salary, which in our area is a decent salary. A lot of people places in the country it's a t- that's not a good salary in philadelphia is a pretty good salary civil service salary anyway um i imagine my dream was to buy a house a row home that um backed up to railroad tracks because they're like default like green space right you know what i mean like wildlife corridor yeah that's what my thought was and there's also this block of houses um in philly that like um block of row houses that or close to where the big park I, I work in and I live next to meets the river. So I would, I would be like, it was so technically East like, Falls? It, well, it was, it was, yeah, it was like, it was, yeah, it was technically the, the, the northernmost part of East Falls where you cross the creek, you know, in the Roxborough slash Maniunk. But anyway, it'd be like, it wasn't, I wouldn't technically have had the park behind me. It would have actually been like a no man's land to accept tracks. But the park entrance is right there. It is. And then yeah. right nearby was, across was a river. So I was like, I would have like, kind of like this no man's land, like woods, like behind my house. Where like, literally if I didn't have a deck, I could build a deck. Looking at like oh. trees behind my house, like on a hill. And then like had the park entrance and then go to the river I wanted to. I was like, this is a dream. 
I mean, granted, like but you know, who's living that dream. Well, I live way. I live in a much better dream than that. I know, but like the dream I never would described is where our friend Robin Irasari lives. <laughs> we have a buddy who's been on the podcast a bunch. Um, Robin, who bought, who ended up buying a house just outside Philadelphia, but a row house that backs up to train tracks. Well, like we we like to right near people, a park. Yeah, like, yeah, like we like to remind people, <laughs> Philadelphia is so skewed because we're so dense that like no one would understand that Robin doesn't live in a city. Because he technically lives on Philadelphia, we're like the most specific about city limits of anywhere in our suburb. Like Robin lives in suburbs. No one would think Robin lives in the suburbs if they saw Robin's house anywhere else in the country. Yeah, like but it was like a couple blocks outside the boundary of the city. Yeah, but like the the in any case, what we're getting at, which I'm trying to make make this general for urbanite naturalists, is just that like if you're living in density, you know what we're talking about. Like like you're you want to be close for us to be closer to nature is to be next to the railroad tracks yeah. or to be like near a nice city park. Well, and I think it's, it's a, uh, and, and this is part of why I find like this idea of, of private ownership of wide swaths of land. So offensive. It's funny. It's like, um, if you're married, you, you understand the, like the wonderful phenomenon of a couple that you could hang out with. Where like the spouse of of your the, sp- the spouse of your spouse friend that you like, you know, talk about like you is well, like keep going complete the thought yeah. right like so like it's great when like you're we're heterosexual men so we have wives and they have friends and they're and so if you hang out with their friend you hang out with their husband and if you're like me and Billy you're always t- you're like God man like. I assume a lot of our partner, a lot of our listeners would imagine that, like, we were saying about us, you're like, oh, I really don't want to hang out with this, this bro and have to pretend I care about sports or whatever, right? And so, like, you're always relieved when, like, your wife's friend is, like, into some geeky shit that you can relate to or whatever. Anyway, so my wife has this friend that I, I like her. And I love her. I like her, her husband a lot. And unfortunately, they're moving soon. Um,. But, like, I really like spending time with them. But, like, they're moving to an area, like, a few states away. Specifically because there's this, like, community started by this person who has idea of, like, like small personal living spaces with, like, communal green space. And I'm like, it sounds like fucking paradise to me. Where is this place? Uh, there's a few of them around the country. Apparently this is, like, in near Richmond, Virginia. And I'm like, man, this sounds great. Like he showed me to me, I'm like, this sounds awesome. It's just like, yeah. we're like, I love that idea of like, of, because like, I think people, it's really, you know, most of our listeners, I think the majority of the United States, but we do have listeners around the country, around the world. And I don't know if people understand this about Americans is that we're, we're a culture where people leave are encouraged. It's like, you're thought of as a loser if you live with your parents, parents at a certain age, while the rest of the world, people don't live with their, don't leave their parents until they're married. And no one thinks it's weird. And so I think Americans are really lonely culture, right? Because of that. And like, I, I wish my parents lived really close. I wish my parents, I like having my own space, but I kind of wish my parents were like right next to me because I love my parents. I wish I spent more time with my parents, even though I spend, I see my parents once a week, probably. I like to see them every day, even not the whole day, but I like to have the option to just walk over and see them. Um, Anyway, my point is, is that I think we're lonely culture. I think it's, it's, 
it negatively impacts American culture how lonely we are because we leave our parents too soon. Right, we don't, right. we don't, we we want to have our own space too soon. And so I love these ideas of like, of communal living, be it like a building you all live in together, and like you might have like your own room or your own apartment or yeah. Maybe you even have, like, your own kitchen and everything, but you have communal space. Or maybe you don't have your own kitchen. I love, like, communal ideas, but also communal green space. And or it might just be you have your own little single house, but then you have communal green space. I love that. And now, granted, we kind of have that where we live in row homes or small... And you know, a park. And yeah. then we have big parks. So we kind of have that Philadelphia. But I kind of wish that was, like, you know, the way we looked at things more. You know? I agree. No, I, I often think, like, I, I want to live in... I, you know, I could live in the country very understandably being seeing what I love, but like the, the, the goal of living in the country for people is often to have your house and no one living right near you, which is to me like, a, I don't think I enjoy it, but B it's also like in a way it's like a historical, you know, like it's not how humans human, like you look at how people we evolved living right next to everybody yeah. in our whatever, our clan, our tribe, whatever, our village. And then maybe you did have, like, your fields, your whatever beyond that. So living in a rural area or in the country meant actually living in a dense housing arrangement with not that many people. <laughs> yeah. Like, with maybe, a, like, like a, with a few dozen families. Well, then, then, yeah, this thing, I love that, like... So you, people were always around. Kids are always around. I mean, I kind of love but that. But you like, still had green space beyond I feel that. like I kind of maybe should have... Found our own village somewhere. <laughs> it kind of everyone's while I think about like maybe I need to live in Wales. It's like the idea of like I love the idea of like the pub you go in and you know everybody, and like you you still have like a. But walk you want of, the rolling green hills and everything, yeah. Yeah, I think that to me is like ideal. You know. I get it. All right, man. It's late. Um, we've wandered far in this conversation, but you know, but we haven't because this is what like we're our wildlife podcast. We're talking about beavers. We're talking about like. It's all related, you know, like, like, yeah. you know, we're talking about like our respect for Steve Ranella, um, you know, and, and hunting and, and the issues with hunting of the respect hunting, but it's not perfect. We talk about like beavers in the urban landscape. But we also talk about like, you know, housing and it's all related. Oh yeah. Yeah. And I think that it's come back to something that's so essential for me. It's like this question of like how, how our um, just how our our private ownership structures and sort of just the economy that we live in now like doesn't permit the kind of dynamic landscape that I want us to think of as normal again and like to try like it, 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 like we shouldn't the question shouldn't be like how do we preserve this one patch of bog so that the bog turtles don't leave it the question is like how do you have like a larger landscape where it's okay if that bog grows in because beavers will be creating another bog so is it, just up the creek. Is it definitely no is it like accepted that bog turtles probably evolved because of beavers specifically? I don't know about that. I, I think the you know if we go back fifteen thousand years, we would have had a whole suite of megafauna that would have been capable of creating disturbances you know, in ways that would have been in addition to whatever beavers did. Like you would, like mastodons and mammoths, like yeah. African elephants 
will turn woodlands into savanna into grasslands. Yeah, I, I talk about that. My, my they'll create yeah. watering holes through their yeah. through their work. So I mean, I, I don't see why I don't I don't th- I wouldn't have expected mastodons and mammoths to do anything different. And so I, I imagine you would have had powerful force of disturbance there. And so it's sort of like. I don't, I'm sure there's people who study this, and by all means, send us an email at urbanwildlifecast@gmail.com if you want to talk about this. But like, I I, I imagine that like kind of pre, you know, uh, pre, what is it, what I want to say pre Pleistocene, yeah. like disturbance regime. It, it, I don't know how we would know what that was, but I imagine we would have plenty of forces for disturbance. Yeah, without I can humans. see totally like knowing what like because w- like we think of watering holes as like water, but like. A lot of wearing holes are like mud. Yeah, I mean, you can totally see like a bunch of mastodons knocking down a bunch of red maples, yeah. you know, and to get to the foliage, just and like, voila, there you have a meadow. Did they knock down the red maples, or did they knock down other trees and the red maples came in? Whatever they knocked down. I, I don't say. Yeah. I'm just saying how deep does it go? But what's funny is that you know we talk about. I don't think this is true. Um, I, we should talk to Avro about this. Avro, you know, our friend. Um, He's been on one of our podcasts before. He wrote the Birds of Chile with the New World Blackbirds. He, Avro Adventures. Um, anyway, he is one of the world's experts on New World Blackbirds. But the thing you hear about brownhead cowbirds was that they, they, they so the cuckoos in, in North America, um, at least in North America, United States, I don't think, I'm trying to think if there's any klepto any like breeding i'm trying to think of parasitic breeding uh, cuckoos in, in in the americas at all but anyway no th- those ones with the weird um beaks the onis i think those can be kleptoparasitic. i thought they had communal nests because you remember i introduced mom jokes to brazil but i thought there was like a there was like i've read something about them being anis yeah onis anyway the cuckoos in north of Central America and North America um, don't aren't brood parasites, right? But brown-headed cowbirds are, right? And what people would say was, well, brown-headed cowbirds followed, developed that behavior to follow bison, right? Right, but you pointed out that there there's a whole bunch of species of neotropical cowbirds that that also are brood parasites that do not have bison, so that can't be true. Well, they could have had other species of, of migratory megafauna. Yeah, I don't know about that, but maybe. So I don't think that's true. But also, onis. I just looked up. There was a study a few years ago about how they can. They normally nest communally. They can also become social parasites, and they can go back and forth. And hmm. so he was looking at how they would go back and forth between the different breeding arrangements. So what, it'd be interesting to think about, like, if there was an animal that evolved around, like, like megafauna. Maybe bison or whatever. That was a bog turtle and not the cowbird. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. But by the way, mom, uh, I introduced mom jokes to Brazil was because like you know I, I do my internship in Brazil. They didn't know I was like you know an expert birder and knew a, a whole lot about the tropical birds yet, right? Um, so they're as they should. They show me around their campus and they they assume I don't know anything about their birds, right? <laughs> and they they show me you know an ani and they're like. This cuckoo has a very interesting breeding behavior where, where one female will mate with multiple males. And I went, just like your mom. <laughs> and then the guy's like, why are you talking about my mother? And I'm like, you don't know about mom jokes? 
And I was like, oh my God, I just ruined my relationship. And then like literally like by the, by the end of that month, they were like making mom jokes. And I'm not even joking. Like my friends <laughs> Skyped me. It is like, you know, Skype was brand new. Like this is like 15 years ago. My friends Skyped me and I was talking to but my, but the people I was saying with didn't know I was, I was talking to my friend. And so he walks from like his room to the bathroom, not realizing I'm talking to my friend and he's in the shower and he starts yelling Tony-isms out loud while in the shower to like, you know, and my friend is like, what have you done to Brazil? He's hearing this, <laughs> this Brazilian like imitate all my it-isms, like, you know, mom jokes and like every day and all my sayings, like, he's like, what have you done to Brazil? I, I, I don't know if mom jokes have become a thing in Brazil, but I think I, I brought mom jokes to Brazil because of Anis and their communal breeding. Not exactly related, but thinking about religion and ecology, I thought about creationism, and I'm like, if you actually believe in creationism, then why don't you feel that every species is a religious artifact that needs to be preserved? Like, if God made this cool-ass little darter that only lives in, like, one watershed in, like, the the Appalachians in Kentucky... There are people who think that, and they call it creation care. Oh, then I need to talk to those people. <laughs> that, to me, is like... like yeah, the whole thing is like, yeah, that creation. Case. I don't think it's dominant within the, within the Judeo-Christian view of nature. You know, much more the dominance. That's what I always felt like. It's like if I ever like, if if like we die and there is this like, first of all, I don't believe in the time is real. I don't think anybody dies. I think everything always was, will always will be. We just can't comprehend. You know, and in my mind, nothing else makes sense. Because how, how nothing if I don't understand how anything could start, right? So therefore, thing have always been. That's the only thing that makes sense to me. But anyway, um, if there is like a god, I feel like he'd be like, "Yo, Billy, I I made all this cool ass shit, and you give a fuck about all of it. <laughs> you rule. You know what I'm saying? I hope so. You know, like, <laughs> like yeah. I mean, that's what the rambles are buying this. But yeah, I kind of like, I mean, it might just be like how I can be trying to find peace with death, but like the whole thing about like God, like, you know, we're always like, you know, like we were like, well, God created everything. And we're like, well, then who created God? And well, God always was. Well, if God can always be, why can't everything always be? And I'm like, well, if everything can, if everything can always be, why aren't we always be? I kind of think that makes the only thing that makes sense is that like, if is that everything always was and always will be. This is the only thing that makes sense to me. All right. We'll close on that. Hope everybody had a good time on the podcast. Yeah. Had a good time with the podcast. I did. Um, and uh, I forgot we're still recording. Oh, we're still recording. Do you want to keep that in? That's fine. Okay. <laughs> so, you know, if you stay with us till the end here, um, you know, keep in touch. UrbanWildlifeCast at gmail.com. Uh you know, keep an eye out for when Tony's book makes it out eventually. I'm, I haven't. I'm still, in, I'm still in the conversations. So. Still in conversation with the publisher. We're with, it's it's coming. Um, and you know, so I felt at this point if they, I'm like, there's been gaps in the conversation that could be weeks or even months, and I'm like, well, but they it always comes back to so moving forward. So I'm like, I'm like, I feel like if they don't want to do this thing, they would have just. Have a I think it's like, moving it's forward. Over. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, well, keep an eye out for that. Uh, and then, of course, 
um, check out where the brown snakes roam. Um, and if you haven't already, uh, you know, please think about chipping in on Patreon. We'd really appreciate it. And everybody, I know I've mentioned this over the years, but just to remind you, I grew up catching brown snakes in a brand lot, and I would name them all Billy. And I love that one of my best friends, grooms in my wedding, is Billy Brown. Who loves doing what? Catching brown, brown snakes, snakes in vacant lots. <laughs> one of my favorite things to do. All right. See you guys later.